we have some time uh, for discussion and questions. I commend you for hanging in here on a Friday night. If you feel tired, I got a feeling Doug's probably more tired. Uh, Doug started a class at what, what time? 7.45. Right, so Doug started a class at 7.45 this morning in Dallas. He lives an hour away from Dallas. Then after teaching three hours, took off to the airport to grab two flights. We landed at 5.30 and we became here at 6.30. So um, I'm sure he's quite tired. Uh, well, Doug, thank you very much yeah. for our first uh, session. Uh, I've got some prepared questions and then we'll take questions. Sure. Does that work? Yeah, that's great. Did you start that? Uh, I did. Okay, great. Gotcha. All right. Um, so uh, the... Doctrine as you presented it here, right? And we'll, we're going to assume that that's the orthodox doctrine. We trust you. Yeah. Um, and so, did the early church believe that doctrine that way? Uh, yeah. I mean, you find it affirmed very early on in the history of the church. Uh, I mean, first of all, all of the elements are in the New Testament, uh, as I was talking about earlier. So, so even if you don't get the term Trinity showing up in the New Testament. Um, you know, all of the elements of the teaching are there. And then you get explicit, uh, the point made quite explicitly uh, in other early Christian literature right on the heels of the New Testament, right? So some of the very early church fathers, some of the, some of the apostolic fathers, in fact, have writings that, that are pretty explicit. Uh, yeah, again, I realize there are people who want to claim that the mature doctrine of the Trinity doesn't get articulated until you know, third, fourth, even fifth century, some people claim. But you find it quite explicit early in the church. So. Yeah. Well, you stole my next question of how early and was Dan Brown right when he uh, when he asserted that it was not until the fourth century? No. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, what a lot of... Just keep talking. Yeah, keep talking. Yeah, okay, okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, Dan Brown's uh, fictional work has been taken far too seriously by many people in terms of, uh, of what it has to say about, you know, the New Testament era and, and the early church. Uh, I'm told by friends who minister on college campuses that there are a lot of college students these days who read Brown as if it's history. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and of course, it's nothing of the sort. And obviously the problem there is, though he wrote an incredible book in terms of entertainment value, he actually himself claimed that it's true. Uh, that didn't help this belief that it's... Yeah, of course, it's not original with him. You, you, you have the kind of argument he wants to make put on the table in the early, I think the early 80s, with a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, yes. uh, which he cites in the Da Vinci Code. Right, and so you know, I mean, obviously, he's influenced by that. So, so this false claim has been around, you know, since at least the early '80s, if not longer. Uh, but it's got no real historical legs to it. Okay. So helpful. Um, you mentioned some heresies concerning the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, are those dead and gone? Are they still around today? Well. Most heresies, uh, first of all, the two areas where you tend to find uh, the most uh, problem in terms of, of people you know, wandering off into heresy 
uh, involved the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Incarnation. Right, Both of those doctrines, it, the early church had to deal with a lot of heretical teaching that arose. Uh, and on both those fronts, you still see a lot of that. So, for instance, as far as uh, Trinitarian heresies go, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Oneness Pentecostals. Yeah. Oneness Pentecostals are modalists, they, and they're explicitly so. They deny that the three persons of the Trinity are distinct persons. Uh, there's a very well-known teacher in Dallas, uh, pastor in Dallas named T.D. Jakes. I uh, wouldn't be surprised if many of you know the name, uh, who, um, when he talks about his understanding of the Trinity, what, what he affirms is modalism, but he then always goes on to say, but I'm not a modalist. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of confusing. Um, as far as others, um, uh, Mormons are not Trinitarian. Uh, in fact, uh, Mormons aren't even monotheistic. Okay. Uh, and, and I know you're aware of this. Um, I'm, well, Mormons, actually, official Mormon teaching says there are infinitely many gods. I mean, not just one, two, three, four. I mean, infinitely many. That's the official church teaching. Now, they would be, I guess the technical term is henotheists. Mormons, uh, you know, will worship just one God, but they actually think there are infinitely many possible. And of course, as, as you know, um, one of the things Mormons, uh, t um, one of the things that's characteristic of Mormon doctrine is their belief that uh, they will one day, uh, if, if all goes well and they live right, they will one day become gods themselves. Yep. Right, so. Um. All right. Oh, Jehovah's Witnesses. I should I, mention them too. Oh, they're actually the next question. Oh, so well, go ahead. Uh, what did Jehovah's Witnesses teach about the Trinity? Uh, well, they deny the Trinity. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that only God the Father is uh, is truly divine. Uh, they view uh, they view Jesus as a great teacher, a uh, an exemplary person to be emulated. Um, but interestingly enough, Jehovah's Witnesses' favorite figure in the early church is Arius. And I, I say that because what Arius is famous for is a heresy, right? But the heresy he commits is precisely the heresy uh, they commit with respect to Jesus. They claim that he's a great being, but he's not divine. So. Um, so really, the Jehovah's Witness teaching is very much a teaching that began, we're not just talking 100 years ago or 200 years ago, I mean, we're talking 2nd century, 3rd century. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, the, uh... By the way, one of the things that's interesting about the New Testament, Tim, uh, and it shows kind of a development over time, you know, in terms of misunderstandings, in the Gospels, the emphasis is upon the divinity of Christ. Why? Well, it was transparently obvious to everybody in Jesus' day that he was a human being. Hmm. What people during his lifetime had trouble accepting was the fact that he was divine. What's interesting, when you get to the, to the era after the ascension, after he's, you know, he rises from the dead and ascends, and you get into the era of the apostles, it shifts. What becomes the critical issue is no longer whether or not uh, he's divine. It's rather, is he really human? Was he really human? Uh, yeah. Right. So you get this kind of interesting shift in the New Testament period. So. Very, very interesting. The um, what about uh, um, Catholics and Protestants? Catholics and Protestants agree on the doctrine of the Trinity or disagree? Yeah, uh, Catholics and Protestants. Um, 
Well, let me put it this way. Catholics who affirm official Catholic teaching and Protestants uh, who are concerned about being Orthodox, right? Because there are Protestants, I know this won't surprise you, who don't care. Um, But yeah, Orthodox, uh, you know, Protestants who... who, uh, uh, who care uh, about being Orthodox, particularly conservative evangelicals, Southern Baptist, I would include here, uh, affirm the doctrine. Uh, official Catholic, Roman Catholic teaching affirms the doctrine. And you didn't mention it, but just as an aside, so also does Eastern Orthodoxy. Very so, okay. so um, obviously uh, Mormons uh, disagree, Jehovah's Witnesses disagree with the Orthodox teaching on this. Mm-hmm. What about Seventh-day Adventists? Um, you know, it's interesting. I uh, I actually know a couple who've started coming to my home church, which is a Baptist church, uh, and he is a former Seventh Day Adventist pastor. And I have to be honest, I, I didn't know a lot about Seventh Day Adventist theology until I met him and his wife. Uh, but he is not only a former Seventh Day Adventist pastor. But he is the son and the grandson of Seventh-day Adventist pastors. And his wife is the daughter of Seventh-day Adventist missionaries. So we're talking about a couple deeply invested in, in Seventh-day Adventism. And what I found out in talking with them is that uh, as Seventh-day Adventists, uh, they had no clear understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, um, after they got to know me, they actually asked me to do a webinar you know, an online seminar for uh, a group that they're involved with of former Seventh-day Adventists who have come to Christ. Hmm. Uh, and what they wanted me to do was something on the Trinity because they didn't understand or even know the doctrine. Okay. Didn't even know what it is. And if somebody that deeply invested in Seventh-day Adventism doesn't even really know what the doctrine is, that's a pretty good indication they don't affirm it. That's uh, right. that's fair. Um, I'm hoping I'm hoping we back to stand up and understand it. Nobody thinks we don't affirm it, but hopefully we do. Um, all right. What about uh, Muslims? Uh, what do they think about the doctrine of the Trinity? Oh, uh, well, one of the common uh, ways that more uh, I mean, I'm sorry, that Muslims will refer to Christians, and of course, from their point of view, this is a very derogatory thing that they say about Christians is that Christians are those who make God three. Uh, they're not Trinitarian, and they don't understand Christian Trinitarianism. They actually tend to misunderstand us and think that we believe in three gods, uh, which, of course, is, as we've talked about, not the doctrine. Um, but, yeah, certainly they would not affirm it. Orthodox uh, Judaism. No, of course not, no. Okay. Uh, obviously, Orthodox Judaism, Jews are, are monotheistic. Uh, but they would not recognize uh, more than one divine person. And obviously, uh, unless, uh, unless you're talking about Messianic Jews, right, Jews who have come to Christ, uh, you're, you're, you know, you're talking about Orthodox Jews, obviously, uh, you know, not Messianic, um, they're going to reject Christ as not just divinity, but his claim to Messiah as well. You know, I go down through all those, number one, because I think it's helpful for us to define those. I think it's also really interesting that on the doctrine of the Trinity, if you can find out what someone believes on the doctrine of the Trinity, you can real quick find out how much common language you can have together. I mean, we just went through a huge list of folks, and the only ones that really Protestants, uh, Protestant Christians would agree with on this would be Roman Catholics and then Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, so that... that 
is that what about folks who are um, uh, in the academy? And I'm thinking here of scholars in the area of uh, philosophy of religion or philosophical theology. Um, is this doctrine all out laughed at in the academy? That's me all to the finish here. Has the doctrine enjoyed strong, robust support academically on any realm in the last half century, say outside of a Christian seminary? Yeah, um, yeah. Let me reframe the question and I see. I'd love for you to do that. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I take it the fundamental question really ends up being something like this. Since Orthodox Trinitarianism is part of what it is to be an Orthodox Christian, the question is, are there Orthodox, you know, and I don't mean Eastern Orthodox, right, because we mean Orthodox with a little low here. Are there Christians, self-identified Christians who are committed to historic Christian Orthodoxy in higher ed, in the academy? And the answer to that is absolutely. And of course, one of the one of the disciplines which people were surprised to find this out about is, in fact, philosophy. Uh, as I, I know you're aware, and, and uh, some folks here are aware, uh, actually, over the last um, forty to fifty years, some of the most uh, well articulated defenses of Orthodox Christian doctrine have come out of professional philosophical circles. And I'm not talking seminary circles; I'm talking university circles. So, yeah. um, and obviously, you would have seen this at Notre Dame. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah. No, I mean, though a confessional institution, still a it's uh, still a major research university, yeah. in particular in this way. All right. Um, so uh, those are the questions I have uh, written up. We've got some time for some more questions. So if you'll raise your hand, we'll jump on. Yes, I see that hand. I've always wanted to say that. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> I see that. Yes. So this may be dangerous to ask two philosophy guys. Considering You're only asking one, so that could be a lot less dangerous. <laughs> so considering <laughs> most of us are not philosophical, uh, is the doctrine of the Trinity illogical? No. Uh, it's interesting you ask this. I actually have an article on this question in, uh, in the Apologetic Study Bible. Uh, uh, the editors of that volume, which is published... Uh, by Brodman and Holman uh, asked me if I would write on this. No, it's not. Sometimes you get accusations that there's logical inconsistency, right? Because people say, well, you think God is one and yet you think he's three. Well, it's true. We think God is one and that he is three. But that's not a logical contradiction. Why? Because the sense in which we affirm that God is one is different than the sense in which we affirm that he is three. Now, look, if we said there's only one God, oh, and also there are three gods, that would be logically inconsistent. Or if we said there are three divine persons, oh, and there are only, there's only one divine person, that would be obviously logically inconsistent. But the sense in which we affirm the unity of God, the oneness of God, is different than the sense in which uh, we affirm the threeness or the plurality in God. Right. So there, there's no logical contradiction here at all, not even on the face of it if you understand the doctrine. No. Very good question. Yes, Ms. Wendy. Um, yeah. If you use the term or the word mystery to what you don't understand, is that, does that diminish or demean the doctrine of the Trinity? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's entirely appropriate for, uh, for Christians to, uh, to acknowledge that our faith has mystery in it. Uh, in fact, 
Christians have historically been committed, and here I mean from the earliest days of the church, to a doctrine known as the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility. And what that doctrine says is, while God has made himself known, and there are things we can know to be true about him and understand, none of us as finite creatures will ever be able to comprehend or fully understand God. That's actually not okay, just okay. That's actually part of the faith. what, what, what we are committed to is affirming the truth of the doctrine, you know, as I've kind of articulated it. But if somebody asks me, so how is that true? Well, my answer is, I don't know. If I knew, I'd write a book and become really rich, you know? Um, this, I would say the same thing, for instance, about the doctrine of the incarnation. That Jesus is God the Son become human and thus both fully divine and fully human. We know that to be true. But how is it true? Well, I don't know. You know, that's a mystery. Or take the doctrine of original sin, according to which, because of Adam's sin, all of us who are his progeny uh, are uh, are uh, fallen. I don't understand. I, now, that that's true, I think Scripture makes clear. And, of course, the church has historically emphatically affirmed it. But how is it that I'm made wretched by Adam's sin? I don't understand how that is, even though... You know, I know that it is true. Or take the doctrine of the atonement. How is it that what Christ does can make me righteous? Right? That's the flip side of original sin, isn't it? Right? So there's certainly nothing inappropriate in acknowledging there are certainly significant limits to our understanding. And, and, you know, sometimes we need to just acknowledge there's mystery here and, um, that doesn't mean it's not worth trying to think through it more as clearly as we can, but you know, eventually, eventually, we're just going to have to acknowledge we're finite. So. I think a, uh, a football analogy here, if I if I can, <laughs> um, is uh, mystery is a fair play in the Christian playbook, but we should probably use it on something like you know fourth and forty, um, not first and five. Um, and uh, I think that's a, and if you're not understanding that, uh, Richard will explain it to you later. He will use Green Bay, though, as the team to explain it. But I think a good example is this. I hear people putt to mystery on uh, the question of, uh, you know, can, uh, how do we know that there's really only one way to heaven? I don't know. It's a mystery. Um, well, there's a lot of places we can turn and explain how we know that. How exactly the Trinity is fully works itself out? That's more like a fourth and eighty question. I mean, it's one of those. Yeah, okay, might as well punt this one uh, because we don't know, and that's okay. So uh, I, I don't know if that's helpful. Um, looking at Shankar's going, if you'd have done cricket, I'd have. Right, uh, I think there's a question over here. Yes, Did you mention Pentecostals? I mentioned oneness Pentecostals, but not Pentecostals more generally. Okay, oneness Pentecostals are a particular group within Pentecostalism, and the reason they're called oneness is because they deny that there's more than one divine person. So they are functionally modalist, but that's certainly not true of of other Pentecostals. Um, you know, but but the oneness Pentecostals that's that is what's one of the central features of their theology. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked for clarification on that. Um, and we didn't even mention Unitarians. Uh, may, I, I did mainly because it's not there's not that many people drawn to that compared to some of the others. Certainly not in the South. Exactly. Now you're right. Good right. Point. Exactly I mean, right. Very good. Point. Um, other other questions? Or not?
Yes, sir. Is it a hit against Christianity that Judaism wouldn't accept Trinitarian, like a pluralistic view of God, but we basically have branched off of Christianity as taking Judaism to the next? Well, the reason the reason we have come to understand that God is triune is because of what has been revealed in and through the ministry of Christ. And then, of course, the ministry of his apostles, right? His designated spokespersons. Um, I, I personally am of the opinion that if, you, if you're looking carefully, you can see uh, the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but it's not explicit, right? It becomes obviously quite explicit in the New Testament. Well, I mean... Obviously, um, non-Messianic Jews, right, Jews who are not Christians, uh, don't accept the New Testament as Scripture, and they ha- they reject the claim that Christ is Messiah, and so they reject Him as well. Uh, I don't think it should surprise us, given that they reject His claim to be Messiah, that they reject the rest of what He has to say about Himself and what His apostles say. Uh, so, so I don't think we ought to be bothered by the fact that they don't agree with us uh, on this point. Um, Except, bothered in terms of our own faith, we we ought obviously to be very concerned about ministering and evangelizing. Um, but but in terms of you know, does that fact somehow make Christianity defective? I, I'd say no, not at all. Does does that answer what you're interested in? Yeah. Okay. Good. Others. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, and they have the same attributes? Well, yeah, each of the divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, ha- is fully divine and has all of the attributes that are necessary for divinity. Are their roles equal, their position and not position? Well, they, they have different roles. Or different, they, they fulfill different roles. Um, and there's a reason the Son is called the Son and the Father is called the Father. And, and of course, a reason the Spirit is called the Spirit. Um, so there are distinctions to be made in their roles. And, um, and we will talk pretty explicitly about some of those distinctions tomorrow when we talk, especially when we start talking in the morning about Christ. Um, but yeah, the fact that they're equal in divinity doesn't mean that they don't, um, they don't have different roles that they play. So. You talk about personhood or being a person. You mentioned before that a person has belief. What else would you qualify what it means to be a person? Are we out of time? Um, <laughs> no, but he has asked a very good question. Yeah. So if we were out of time, you, wouldn't, say, you, you know what? We should, we should yeah. answer that. Well, look, here's the, here's the short answer to your question. I don't know. Now, here's a little bit longer answer. Um, and, and, you know, the question, what is it to be a person? By the way, notice that's not the same as what is it to be a human person. Because there are non-human persons. Obviously, the three divine persons prior to the incarnation are, are persons but not human. Now, Jesus, or Christ, having taken on humanity, becoming one of us, is now human, but right apart from the incarnation, he wouldn't have been. Uh, and the Father and the Spirit will remain ever 
divine persons but not human. And of course, there are angelic persons, right? Some of whom are fallen, of course. Uh, so we don't equate person with human, right? Although being a human involves being a person, right? It's a person of a certain sort. What sort? Well, namely human, right? So what is it? So these are two separate questions, right? What is it to be human? What is it to be a person? Um, I don't know that um, we're in a terribly good position to answer, to define it. I think there are certain characteristics that seem to be necessary for, for something to be a person or someone, if you will, to be a person. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can define it. Um, and so, and, and I'm, so I'm reluctant to try to define it. Um, or is it something that was added in the fourth century? We talk about yeah, no, the notion of personhood uh, is not alien to the scriptures, nor um, nor is uh, is it uh, uh, you know a late development, right? Now that being said, um, actually, what scripture has more to say about is 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 more the question of what it is to be human, right? Uh, what it is to be human is to be created in God's image, right? I mean, obviously Genesis makes this point explicit. And that sets humanity apart from all other creatures, right? Because nothing else is created in the image and likeness of God. But even here, we, we've got, um, we're going to have difficulty knowing quite how to flesh this out. Why? Well, even though the scriptures make it clear that we are made in the image of God, the scriptures don't tell us precisely what it means to be made in his image. And there are a lot of different views on this. Uh, and I have one, but I'll spare you of it for the moment. Um, you won't be doing that long, actually. Stay on this oh, why? You're going you're gonna to raise it? Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we'll talk about that later. Um, right? But the, the notion of personhood, uh, again, I mean, it's not alien to the biblical text, but that doesn't mean the text defines what it is to be a person for us. Um, so that that's not helpful. I just want you to know I was never allowed in any class to respond. I don't know. Um, so I think that's interesting. Anyway, yes. There's another question back there. I thought I saw a hand. Maybe a stretch. Yes. How does Judaism build in scripture like it says, let us make man in our own image? Yeah, they they obviously don't interpret that text trinitarianly. Uh, The standard view among Jewish scholars on that text is that the we is the royal we, right? So, for instance, you're probably uh, familiar uh, with Queen Victoria's famously for referring to herself in the plural, right? She said, we are not amused. Well, what she meant was she wasn't amused, right? There's no we about it. So there's this kind of plural we, right? and, and I mentioned Queen Victoria as an example of this, but this goes way, way back. Uh, most Jewish scholars read the, the language of plurality there as, uh, as that. Or there, there's another, uh, that's the most dominant view. The other way that I've heard them handle that text is to say the we here is God and not, not multiple divine persons, but rather God and he's speaking in his court to angels who will assist him in creation. So that's another view that's sometimes put on the table. And they've got some precedent for doing that because we actually get other places in the Old Testament where it's talking of 
kings, persons, but it uses the royal we. No. So they're not way out to lunch on that. Nor, though, would you... Would, do you think we're out to lunch as Christians for looking at that we and saying, oh, obviously, or the us there that say, hey, that's that's a trinity. Because we're told that by the Jewish scholars. They say, back, you guys are completely missing this. There's no Trinitarian here. I actually uh, think that text is one where... I actually think the royal reading is not is not wrong-headed. But I also don't think that that's a reading that comes to the exclusion of the Trinitarian reading. I actually think it's right and proper to understand the text in both those ways. Um, So, your mileage may vary.